We are actually in the middle of a study, and being aware of, of, the, of the clock right now, I want to jump right in if we could. And Jeff, if you could just put that, that picture up very briefly, just as a reminder to us, I'm going to not recap at the length at which I have done in the past, just want to remind us that we're looking right now at this time frame that we call the Tribulation. A time frame that happens after Christ has come and taken His church off of the earth. And we have been studying that. And so what we have determined for ourselves in looking at the Scripture is after the rapture event, that's Christ taking the church. You see that, uh, that curved arrow, if you would. After the rapture event comes the tribulation era, this, this extended time frame. Now, we know a couple things about this time frame. Number one, we know that it is seven years. We know that it is an intensifying time of, of tribulation. Jesus describes it first as the beginning of sorrows, and then a time of tribulation, and then a time of great tribulation. So there's this progression of intensity. We know that the conditions will be very severe. We'll see that again in just a little bit. We also have observed that it's Israel-centered at this point because the church has taken off of the earth, and that's why so many of the prophecies at this time revolve around Jerusalem or the nation of Israel or those nations surrounding Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. We have noted that God's judgment becomes more aggressive so that by the end, clearly, it is just His hand of judgment upon the earth. And we have also seen significantly that people are being redeemed during this seven-year time frame. And those are the characteristics, the qualities, if you will, of this time. What we've been looking at, we started looking last week, we want to finish up this week, is the people or the population of the tribulation. What's going on with the people? Who are the players during this time frame? And what we have noted simply is the population will be divided. You look at Revelation chapter 4 right on through verse 18, and you can see this sense of there's this constant dividing out of the people of the tribulation. And we've divided them very simply this way. There's the good guys and the bad guys. The good guys are those who yield themselves to and align themselves with the kingdom of God. And we saw last week, we just, we just identified them because time will just not allow us to go. We're not attempting to do that with this study. We identify them. By the way, if you want a more in-depth study, then you need to be in Tim's class on the Sunday morning before church because they are studying the book of Revelation right now. And they will take it slower and be able to take you into more depth. But we've noticed among the good guys, first of all, Revelation chapter 7, 144,000 sealed Israelites 12,000 from each of 12 tribes, and their ministry is to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I believe the greatest number of people who are coming to faith are coming to faith out of their testimony that goes forth around the world. The next among the good guys that we have noticed is that there is a great, we call them a great international multitude in Revelation chapter 7. We find that of these coming to faith because of the ministry of the 144,000, we find also that because they're coming to faith during the time of this great tribulation, that for many of them it will cost them their lives for taking a stand for the sake of the gospel. They will be martyred. In fact, this, uh, Revelation indicates until a certain fixed number that God has said, and then he says no more. He will not allow any more to be killed. We have the, the ministry of the two witnesses. Pretty good chance that it's Elijah and Moses who are going to come back from heaven. And they carry not only a prophetic ministry, but they carry prophetic judgment ministry in that they are able to enact supernatural things upon the earth just like Moses and Elijah did. And they are not necessarily popular. 
Because the prophetic judgment ministry that they bring is like a, is like a prod, is like a painful thing to get the world to wake up and say, look, at, you're dealing with the creator God of the universe and you are aligning against him and you need to wake up. But for the most part, the world doesn't want to wake up and the world doesn't want to follow God. And so they are hated, but they are the two witnesses who eventually will be killed and then raised in front of all to see. And lastly, we saw in Revelation chapter 12, we saw the woman who gives birth, who is a representation of the nation of Israel. She gives birth to the child, the child being Christ. Those are the good guys. That's what we have already seen. Now what I want to look at for just a few minutes yet this morning are the bad guys. These are the guys aligned with the kingdom of darkness. Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9. We'll look at these characters now. Picking it up in verse 13. This is taking place during the time of the trumpet judgments. There's three sets of judgments that take place. Seals, trumpets, and bowls. You can read about them in detail in Revelation. It's during this time frame. The six angels sounded. Revelation 9, 13. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpets, Release the four angels who are bound at the great Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. A third of mankind will die in this judgment directly from the hand of God. There's a little bit more said about it there and what it, what it is like, but we're going to jump down to verse 20. But the rest of mankind... Not part of that third. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. After God's judgment takes out one-third of the earth, there's two-thirds who are left who continue to thumb, place their thumb in the eye of God, if you will, and say, we do not want what you to rule over us. We do not want what you have for us. We instead want to maintain our idolatry. We want to maintain our immorality. We want to maintain the worshiping of false gods. We want to maintain everything that we want. We will not have you rule over us. And so I refer to them as the unrepentant masses, that although the gospel is going forth, by the 144,000 who give testimony, and by the two witnesses who uh, bring uh, prophetic judgment, there are those who say, nope, even after this angels, uh, these angels are released in the third dial, we don't want anything to do with you. That's the rebellious heart of man, friends. This is what we are like, I'm sorry to say. And we all have that heart unless we have been changed by the living God. Revelation chapter 12. Understand we are moving towards the end by the time that we are here. Revelation chapter 12 verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. 
Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. I don't understand exactly how it works, but there are a number of places in the Scripture which seem to indicate in this time frame And for this history, as we have seen earth unfolding, Satan has access into God's presence. We see this in the book of Job. That's the whole premise to the book of Job, is that Satan comes. And and what does he do when he has this access to the Father? He is the accuser of the brethren. Now, we have said it over and over again. Satan's goal is what? I shall be like the Most High. What we are watching unfold is two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness in conflict with the kingdom of light. And God is revealing to us, here's how that conflict is going to unfold, and this will be the ultimate end of that conflict. But Satan himself, at one point, as there is this conflict within heaven, and the angels fight Satan and his hordes, and Satan and his hordes lose. And they finally are cast out of heaven. But where do they wind up? They wind up now with a new presence on the earth. With a, not a new presence, shall I say, a uh, more intense. What's the word I'm looking for? They are now, their presence is here, not just their influence and their ability to move back and forth between two. But now they're like here. They're here. And the earth is warned, say, he's come. He knows his days are short. He's angry. And so now it's not going to be pretty for what's happening with the rest of the world. Can we please take note of this passage? One of the things significant about this passage, friends, is we have identified so many things here about this one who's cast out of heaven now, and now he's on earth. We learn that he is the great dragon, that he's the serpent, the devil, and Satan. This is why we call, we kind of move through our titles of who the evil one is. We ascribe all of these things to him because the Bible does. And he is viewed in these ways. And notice that what he has been up until this time, he's been a deceiver and he's the accuser of the brethren. In his presence before God, what does he continually do? He continually, you see it in the book of Job, he continually points to people like you and I and he says to God, he says, hey, did you see what Miles just did? That's wrong. That's sin, and you have to judge it. And you cannot let that sin be a part of what happens here in your heaven. And he accuses us before God and calls upon God and his righteousness to reject those people who are such sinners. So that why? So that he alone can bring them into his kingdom of darkness. That's the accusation that he brings. And the accusation is accurate. And the accusation has been brought against every one of us. Not just against Miles, and not just against David, and not just against Emily and Tara and Ryan. It's been brought against every one of us in heaven. That did you see what he did? Do you see what she did? You cannot let them into your presence. And he would be absolutely right except for one thing. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. 
And by the word of their testimony, and God says, I don't even see that. I don't know what you're talking about. What I see, and all of them, is I see the righteousness of Jesus Christ, whose righteousness has been put to their account because they have put their faith in him. And the accuser of the brethren has no place to stand because the penalty for our sin that he wants God to mete out on us personally by casting us into his kingdom, the penalty has been paid by Jesus Christ and the victory remains ours. Nonetheless, that's what he does is he seeks to accuse us and to grab everyone that he can before God. That's the accuser of the brethren. He is not a nice fellow. He is the one who deceives continually. That is what he is about. Oh, young people, young people. Hey, young people, can I have your attention just for a minute, please? Will you listen for a minute, please? Young people. As you move through life, you're going to find that there are going to be people who come your way. There are going to be your peers. There are going to be adults who are ready to sell you out. And they want you to walk in a way that is going to align yourself with the evil one. This one who one day will be cast to the earth. This one who is a deceiver. This one who accuses you before God. Can I please convince you here and now that this evil one does not have your best interest in mind? Will you please believe me that his desire, as described by the Savior, is to kill, steal, and destroy? And that when you walk in that path whereby you embrace the kingdom of darkness, you walk away from the things of God, you say, I'm not going to let Jesus have any controlling influence in my life, that all you're doing is walking into the arms of one who wants to hurt you. Will you please embrace that, young people? Will you please not fall for the lies out there that say, hey, this is all right, this is good, we can do this, we can do that, there's nothing wrong with this. Yes, guess what? You're being deceived. And that is what he does all the time. He deceives you and then he accuses you to the Father when you buy into his deception. Young people, those of us who are old enough to know, we're concerned for you because it's a difficult world and it's getting harder and harder to maintain a testimony for Jesus Christ. And young people, you got to know that the one behind all of that is out to destroy you. He cares nothing for you. Jesus Christ came that they might have life, have it abundantly, but the evil one came to kill, steal, and destroy. If I could get any simple thing into the minds of every young person here today, it would be that, and that that might define how you make decisions for the next 30 years in your life. Because he's looking to consume you. Okay, so that's the evil one. He is cast down. He's not a nice guy. Followed up with Revelation chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. That's half of the seven-year time period. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names... 
Notice the distinction. Remember, the, pe- the population of this area is divided. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of the life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And we have here what the Bible refers to as the Antichrist. This one who is a man who gains his power from Satan who's been cast to the earth. And you'll notice there is something, a couple of things that are identified with him. Number one, he has this near-death experience, and it looks like he has had power over death itself. Number two, he is exalted and blasphemous for 42 months. That last three and a half years. And this is the one who come with the abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke about in his 70th week that Second Thessalonians spoke about that we read. This is the one who midway into the tribulation comes and sets himself up in the very temple of God and it's required that you worship him instead of worship the creator God of the universe. The abomination of desolations. This is the Antichrist who calls men away from allegiance to God. And then if we drop down just a little bit further, there's a second character I want to make sure we get in here. You've got to see them together. Revelation chapter 13, verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs. Now, that shouldn't be surprising because these are this whole thing, when this angelic realm of Satan and his minions you know, came crashing down to earth, they come with power that is beyond what you and I are aware of and capable of. He, perform, he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. You've heard of this mark. You've heard of it. And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of, uh, it is a number of man. His number is 666 the false prophet. There's a third character that we need to be very clearly aware of. We've got Satan being cast down from heaven. We then have the Antichrist empowered by Satan who rises up, appears, having been taken by the sword, having been taken in battle, appears to have have, uh, come back to life from this wounding that he has received, to the point that people say, how could you fight against the beast? Look at he's got power over life and death. He can raise himself up. And then we have his minion, the false prophet, who then comes in requiring people to worship this one who for three and a half years puts himself in the temple. He is the abomination of desolation of, Daniel, of Daniel's 70th week. And now we have this unholy trinity of Satan, the Antichrist and the false prophet, being allowed great opportunity and great power and uh, a great wonders to be able to be shown in the earth. 
and to gather those to them and to have an influence upon those who do not want to serve the living God. And a distinction will be made. I said the people are divided. The distinction will be known by those who are willing to receive the mark of the beast upon their hand or upon their forehead. And without that, no buying or selling. Without that, everything you do is going to have to be done underground. And the pressure will be upon those who do not worship the mark of the beast. And some people will freely receive it. Well, of course, I'll gladly do this. Why? Because they've been deceived. And they're because they're part of a kingdom that is about to destroy them. And they're going to just go ahead and receive it because, yeah, this is, this is what is. Here's what I find interesting. Just think on this one little element of this, friends. What is the thing that causes, what's the thing that causes the people to say, who can war against the beast? What is the thing that people take note of and say, this guy's worth following? This guy has the answers to all of the world's problems. What's the thing? He was wounded with the sword and appeared dead. And now he lives. Who can war against that? This guy is amazing. This guy's incredible. And they follow him. Does that cause anybody to raise a question? I find I raise a question in reading that. And the question is simply this wait a second. Wasn't there someone else who was killed, put to death brutally, raised again the third day, lives forever? Why are they so readily going along with the deceiver? Why are they not saying, hold on a second, let's evaluate these two things here. This guy's making a pretty strong claim that we ought to all follow him, and it, it, it sounds like the greatest number just do. They throw their hands in with him and go, oh, wonderful, this is good. And you see, friends, the real problem is, as I look at that, as it reminds me of what Jesus talked about, the, the power of resurrection to convince us. The power of resurrection to convince us is limited. He said, if they have not heard Moses and the prophets, neither will they hear, though one is raised from the dead. Because the real issue at hands here is not whether or not they have evidence to follow Christ or to follow Satan. The real, incident, incident, the real issue at hand is the, the inclinations and proclivities of our own heart that say, I don't want to follow God. I want to be in rebellion to God. I want to do it my way. I don't want God to rule over me. That's the problem that we face. It's not a matter of evidence. And so when one comes along and, and is allowed to, if you will, mimic what identified Christ to be clearly who he is, people follow it readily. And they think they now have an excuse and a reason and a justification. Guess what? They weren't going to follow Christ no matter what. That's what we talked about, the unrepentant masses. And they're given something to confirm to them a deception. They're allowed a deception that will confirm to them that, yeah, we're following the right guy. He's the man. He's the man. No, you've missed the man already. The man was killed 33 A.D., and you missed him. And he's the one that has been proclaimed. And so we have these, these two messages that are out there. But for a time, the time that Jesus says, the time of great tribulation... It looks like the evil one is going to win. Now, those are the characters. Those are the good guys and the bad guys. I'll just let's wrap it up here real fast, okay? Here's the deal. Um, I prophesied this week. I knew exactly what was going to happen. 
I knew before it happened what would happen. You see, I uh, was uh, heading out of town at one point, and I noticed that the Senex station right here in the corner had jumped its prices like about 30 cents a gallon. And then I had to go up to Carlstead. had a wonderful time having breakfast with somebody in Carlstead earlier this week. They were very kind, uh, and I just enjoyed it immensely. And So I went up and had breakfast in Carlstead. I noticed the Carlstead prices were up, and I prophesied that Adam's going to be raising his prices, sure enough. <laughs> yes. Now, I knew he was going to raise them, but you know, and I said to myself, should I go fill up every tank on every vehicle that I have? And guess what? I didn't have the time right then. I didn't have the time to go jockeying all my cars into town, and so now they're all sitting on empty, and there I'm going to pay that extra money. And Adam's just like, I'll take your money. It's fine. He doesn't care. So I probably lost somewhere between 10 and 15 bucks because I never quite got around to it. Didn't think it was worth it. I knew for reality what was going to happen. I just didn't respond to it. I didn't do anything to protect myself from it, from that thing that was going to hurt me. And it did, but we're only talking a matter of a few bucks that I didn't deal with that. Friends, if I can make the connection, we are watching gas prices go up around us. As we watch the world stage being set for what God has said is going to happen, it's clear what is going to happen. Israel is back in the land. Unheard of. Amazing. Back in the 1940s that they came back into the land. As we noted last week, Russia is creating an alignment among the nations of the north, which is exactly what Ezekiel 38 and 39 says will be happening. And we're seeing that alignment take place. Who has Israel got defending them at all anymore? They're almost completely on their own. Have they been left abandoned as the nations turn against them? We're watching the gas prices go up, friends. We have all of these, there's many more, but we have all of these indications as to what exactly is going on around us. And we got to decide, am I going to let this thing just come on, blow by me, and then I pay the cost? Or do I realize there's a decision I have to make to protect myself from what is going to happen? And the only protection, the only remedy, the only hope that we have is as Satan, the accuser of the brethren, seeks to bring us before God and say, God, you've got to hold him guilty, is that we will overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. And that's it. Jesus Christ is the only remedy we have, friends. The world stage is being set. There is an end to this. By the way, the fact that there is an end to this, by the fact that this is coming and the culmination is here, that ought to encourage us in terms of the ministries that we carry. It ought to also be encouraging us about our Operation Christmas Child boxes, that there are little children around the world who need these boxes and they need to hear this message because this world is coming to a cataclysmic end. And we have a chance of being a testimony to God's love and God's provision that they might receive it prior to these desperate days which are coming, friends. But for us personally, are we absolutely assured that our faith is in Jesus Christ, that he is the only hope that we have? Because we're open to deception and we're open to uh, buying into what seems incredible and amazing with the rest of the world, we need to fall on our faces before God and say, God, you alone are my hope. You have provided a remedy in Jesus Christ. And friends, if we do not receive that remedy, 
we enter this time frame when the church is taken up very, very vulnerable to the deceptions of the evil one. And it is not a pretty time. I beg of you, if you have never met Christ in a personal way, that today be the day that you simply understand, Lord, uh, I'm a sinner. And before you, I need help. Christ is the remedy. I claim him now. Pray that prayer. If you don't understand what I'm getting at, track me down after the service. I'll be right at the back. But nobody should leave here today without understanding. As clear as I knew the gas prices were going up, I know just as clearly, and you can too, that we're coming to a head. There's a culmination, and if you're not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, it is not good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and for your grace. And Lord, I pray that this message of our need for Christ might might penetrate every heart here, Father, that none of us leaves, none of us leaves in danger, that if Christ returned today, that if he came back today, we would be vulnerable to the deceptions of the evil one who will be cast to earth. So may each one of us find security in you, Lord, alone, Father, and may we take seriously our task for reaching others with such a message. In Jesus' name, amen.